relationship is a hell of an interesting topic. Oh my goodness, yes. It's um, a lot of books have been written about it and seminars given and classes taught and stuff like that. I don't know how well anybody's ever done it really nailing it down. General Stanley McChrystal was described by Robert Gates, a fellow for whom we have a lot of respect around here, as perhaps the finest warrior and leader of men in combat I have ever met. Uh, his credentials in the United States military are impeccable. Uh, he has led a, a, quite an interesting life of leadership, and his new book is Leaders, Myth, and Reality. General McChrystal joins us now. How are you, sir? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. You know, just another book on leadership didn't really hold any interest for me, um, but then I started flipping through yours. I looked at the table of contents, looked at all the different styles of leadership and the leaders throughout history you took a look at, and now I can't wait. Well, you're kind. We really didn't want to write another book on leadership until we realized we don't think we understood leadership. And so we took this one on. Well, listen, let's talk a little bit about your your day job, or at least your old day job, uh, commanding troops, being a general. Uh, You know, both Jack and I are from military families. We do a lot of work for military charities. And so we're, you know, fairly familiar with the culture um, as much as civilians can be. It's been said to me many times that the higher you rise in the military, the higher rank, the less you're a soldier and the more you're a politician. Um, Was that a challenge for you? It's a challenge for everybody, I think, um, because you your ethos is that of a soldier. That's what you want to be. That's where you identify. And then when you find yourselves in the halls of politics, it's complicated. Sometimes it's a little bit distasteful. I guess it's necessary business, but it's not something that fits comfortably. Well, and you, you still have responsibility for the, the lives and well-being of a hell of a lot of soldiers who are looking to you. And I think it would be an awful thing to forget you're a soldier. Well, that's the thing. And, you know, they require you to represent them. And sometimes you're trying to translate a pretty complicated situation in a war and something that many of the politicians have not experienced personally. You're trying to put that into terms they can understand to drive decisions. And you feel the responsibility of that because it's hard to get it right. When you were in in command in Afghanistan, what was the the biggest number of uh, people you had underneath you at one point? Well, we got to 150,000 NATO troops, U.S. and and NATO troops, and then we had about 300,000 Afghan forces, which essentially not under my direct command, but worked with us. So it was a pretty significant number of people. So you're trying to, um, uh, you know, you've you've got ideas of what you need to do, who needs to go where and do what to accomplish the goals you want to accomplish. You have to run that through the politicians, and then you have to have the support of the people back home. That's got to really add to the difficulty. Well, that's right. And you learn over time that those become utterly critical. If you can't keep the support of the people back home, if you can't explain to political and policy leaders well enough to have their support, then anything else you do won't work because it just won't be built on a solid foundation. And we found that in wars, Korea, Vietnam and whatnot that regardless of how clever your military actions may be, if you haven't got the other parts right, you really can't succeed in the long term. You go through a whole bunch of different uh, famous names in your book and uh, talk about their leadership abilities. Who's the greatest leader of all time? Oh, boy, that's an impossible question. Of the, course. <laughs> the leader yeah, the leader in this book that I admire the most, interestingly enough, is Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. And it's not because of his cause, that the civil rights cause is righteous. It was because... His skill at taking all the disparate groups that actually made up the civil rights movement, managing and leading that effort against pretty stiff resistance and some tepid political support, was uh, extraordinary. And yet we tend to think of him as giving the I Have a Dream speech. 
And yet it was really this master, because he was never elected or appointed to anything. He had to do it by moral suasion and skill. So that's a perfect example, then, for the, for the direction I wanted to go, because I've read enough about Martin Luther King Jr. to know he didn't want to do that. He wasn't he wasn't because no. we often think of leader of people having leadership abilities that they you know that they uh, that they indicate when they're first graders and all through grade school and that sort of person. They were superheroes and they're driven yeah. to be a leader and everything like that. And he didn't want to do that at all. Yet he was. So what is it in some people that you just born with it? It's charisma. What is it? I think it's the moment, actually. You know, obviously, Dr. King had good schooling, good values from his father uh, he was prepared in some ways, but in reality, the moment met the man. The Montgomery bus crisis in December 1955, he's a 26-year-old pastor who is suddenly asked to lead this thing, which for more than a year has all the African Americans walking or getting to work other than using public transportation. It was an extraordinary effort for the time and very effective and completely different from anything he had been schooled or ambitious for. General Stanley McChrystal's on the line. The new book is Leaders, Myth, and Reality. And I appreciate you making that point. That's one we try to make here on the Armstrong and Getty Show semi-regularly, is that some of these people that we have monuments for in Washington, D.C., well, all of them, they were not superheroes. They were not gods. They were human beings who had aches and pains and, and, and you know toothaches and colds and like the rest of us. George Washington answered to all of those pains, but he did what he did. Martin Luther King Jr. did what he did, um, and so I think that's a great lesson. Uh, I'm looking at the list of leaders you go through from Martin Luther and Martin Luther King to Boss Tweed to Margaret Thatcher to Harriet Tubman to, to Coco Chanel. Um, really an interesting approach to study in leadership. Well, it, it's all of them were leaders. You may be surprised to know. I didn't even know Coco Chanel existed. I thought the Chanel name was just on stores. Uh, but the reality was she's an extraordinary leader. She comes, she's born near the end of the 19th century, as it becomes an orphan. She becomes a courtesan and then a seamstress. And then she meets a, a moment in time where women's fashion needs to change from the old heavy corseted things to something lighter. Economics of the First World War provide an opportunity. And then there's the beginning of women entering the workforce. So she sees this moment in time. She not only seizes it, but she becomes a leader of it through her own uh, persona. She acts the part. She looks the part. She becomes the symbol of what women can be and essentially marketing or fashion. But she was a hard leader. I mean, if you worked for her, it was not a bowl of cherries. But it was inspiring because they were doing something special. And I think you see leaders like that who go through difficult challenges. They may be hard on the people that they are around, but in reality they create something like Walt Disney or any of these zealot leaders, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi or Robespierre. They push something in a direction by creating a, a connection with us as followers. I keep getting back to the same question. You talked about the moment meeting the man or or the woman, and that's what I don't know, um, put them in a position for leadership. Um, is it something you're just born with? The, all the seminars that that they have and classes and things like that can can you get anything from those that actually can make you a better leader? 
Well, I think you can, but there's a great danger to them because many of us know what it takes to be a better leader than we are right now. We could all write them down, and if we had the self-discipline to do them all the time, we, we would be better. But the real reality is every situation is so contextual that, so that taking an effective CEO out of one company and moving him to another company statistically fails most of the time. And we say, well, wait a minute. That person, she was great in that company, and we moved her here. Why couldn't she do it again? Did she lose focus or something? No, the context was different. And so the followers are different. The requirements are different. The best leaders are almost chameleon-like. They get into a situation, and they're able to sense what the requirement is, the requirement of the followers, the requirement of the situation, what kind of leadership is needed in that particular moment, and then keep shifting so that that leadership's appropriate. Doesn't mean you change your values, doesn't mean you're dishonest one moment and honest the next, but it means how you react to people, how you communicate, how you make decisions is all extraordinarily uh, reflective of that person's empathy and, and ability just to discern what's needed in the moment. Stanley McChrystal is on the line. Uh, General, uh, let me ask you about a couple of the leaders that you write about in the book. I find it fascinating that you that you took a serious look at the leadership style of Abu Musab al-Zarqawi. Tell us about his leadership. Well, I fought him for two and a half years, my organization, and then we killed him. And, you know, there was a desire to hate him, and, and I wasn't unhappy we killed him. But the reality was I developed a grudging respect for a guy who had very little education, got thrown in prison for five years, and comes out of that crucible personally self-disciplined. He comes out of that crucible understanding that although he can't intellectually meet the requirements of some people, he's got this self-discipline and conviction so that he can lead by example. In prison, he's got a tattoo he wants to remove, and he has a razor blade smuggled into him, and he cuts it off his arm with a razor blade. And, And the other prisoners see that, and they say, here's a guy who's so committed to his beliefs, his belief in Islam. He's willing to do that. And so by becoming that kind of a leader, he becomes this magnetic personality. And then when he led al-Qaeda in Iraq, he was, you know, I could argue a psychopathic killer. I mean, he personally beheaded people, but he did it for a cause that he didn't waver from, and he apparently believed in. And so he brought a lot of people who weren't as strong of believers as he was. They weren't as confident as he was. But he could cause them to go where they wouldn't have gone simply by being that beacon, that zealot who is so confident in his belief that people go, well, there must be something to it. And and then the second leader I want to ask you about specifically, you have an entire chapter on Robert E. Lee. Tell us about that. Well, it's interesting. We, We first were going to pair Robert E. Lee as one of these heroes, as a symbolic hero. And pair him with Harriet Tubman. And we said that would be very uncomfortable. But we knew we had to put Robert E. Lee in the book because through my life, he'd been sort of my role model. You know, I'd gone to Washington Lee High School. I'd gone to West Point many years after him. I had used him as a symbol of what military leadership should look like. I even had a picture of him my wife had given me in our home for 40 years. And then as we got to after the Charlottesville incidents with white supremacism, my wife said, you know, I think that picture may be sending a message to people in our home that you don't want to send. And, you know, she was right. And it, it wasn't Robert E. Lee's fault, but the reality was 
it had been hijacked. But still, when I studied Robert E. Lee, I realized that I'd studied a lifetime and looked at him as a military leader. And I'd said, you know, he was charismatic. He was decisive. He was all the things you want in a military leader. But if you really look harder, he also, as a commander, he had a higher casualty rate among his infantry than any other commander in American history. And so it was very dangerous to be in his army. And he lost the war. Now, there are a lot of reasons, but he did. And he did it in support of the South, which was seceding to maintain slavery. And even if you allow for the context of the times of the 19th century, it's hard not to take that into account in assessing someone. So what I think I came to was a a more realistic, holistic view of Robert E. Lee. I still admire many things about him, but I view him as distinctly human, distinctly flawed, just like I am. Yeah, I wonder about how we should handle that, and I know this is a different topic from your book, but I'm a big Stonewall Jackson fan. You talk about an amazing leader. Um, And uh, how should we treat those people? They are products of of the United States of America, but they were on the wrong side of a a big issue. Well, that's right. I think we have to treat them as humans, and we have to admit that even in the context of the moment, I think they made a decision that is morally indefensible. Now, there are a lot of things that would say they were just you know, 70% of the United States Army officers that were in the U.S. Army before the war went, that were from the South, went to the South, but still 30% didn't. And so we, we can't be entirely dismissive of that as something we should judge them on. General Stanley McChrystal's online. His book is Leaders, Myth, and Reality. Just a couple minutes left. Uh, speaking of, you know, generals, and Robert E. Lee reminds me of this. Uh, can you, and this is one of my favorite topics from the Revolutionary Period, uh, General Washington lost again and again and is hailed as a great general. Why? Well, he understood. I mean, he lost battles. Right. He understood that to win the war, all he really had to do was keep the Continental Army in, to, in the field and as a uh, as a threat to the British. He knew that over time that Britain would tire of the expense of the war. They would they would feel like they were putting their hand in a bucket in one part of the country, pulling it out, and and immediately that the rebel cause would fill back in, and that was the case. So all he had to do was not lose. But that was a much taller order than it seemed, because keeping the army in the field, keeping it fed, keeping it supplied, and keeping its morale up meant it had to fight periodically. It couldn't just run away. It had to fight periodically, and that was great risk against the best land army in the world, the British Army at the time. So, you know, he actually was a, a pretty cagey leader, and his moral leadership, if you look at times, was just so towering that in many cases it probably kept the army together when almost nothing else would have. We could talk to you all day, sir, and I wish we, we could. Uh, perhaps someday we can talk a little longer. General Stanley McChrystal the book is Leaders, Myth, and Reality with Jeff Eggers and Jason Manjone. Uh, General, a real pleasure. Thank you. It was my honor. Thanks for the time. You got it. If we are doing a long-form podcast, I know the question that needs to be asked, but I didn't want to ask it and eat up the time. What kind of a leader is Donald Trump? Oh, boy. And uh, McChrystal's answer could be newsmaking. Oh, boy. But I didn't want to derail the whole conversation and do the thing that everybody does now, where everything, you you know, you're going over these historical leaders, you have to make it about Trump. I that was want... a remarkable act of discipline. I didn't want to do that. On your part. I'm the man, I'm the man, I'm the man.
Yeah, that's interesting when he's looking at everybody from Zarkawi to Robert E. Lee. Oh, yeah, and and uh, Robespierre and Harriet Tubman and Walt Disney and all. Yeah. I mean, it's just... Pretty cool. Yeah, it's a really interesting book. Martin Luther King Jr., obviously a lot about him. Hillary, speaking of great leaders, is thinking about running for president. Stay tuned to the Armstrong and Getty Show. Armstrong and Getty. The conscience of the nation. God the Armstrong and Getty Show. Trump is right. Birthright citizenship is stupid. No real country does it anywhere on earth or ever has. Uh, it's just it's just dumb. It's it's an accident of history. The 18th century couldn't anticipate global near instantaneous travel. How, how, what do you mean it's an accident of history? Well, because the 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 idea was that slaves would be citizens. There was some debate as to whether they were citizens because they weren't born citizens. And it was a force the South where you got no choice. Anybody born in our borders is a citizen, so you got to treat them like a citizen. And you got to let them vote, etc. Bingo. There's no anticipation that Chinese rich people could fly to the U.S., pop a kid and then fly home with a U.S. citizen or that we'd, underarm. <laughs> or that we'd become a welfare state, so you'd have any reason to get a baby born in this country, right. then bring in your aunts, uncles, and grandpas and jump on Social Security and get free medical care. You know, that's a good point. That's an excellent point. All things being equal, there wouldn't be any freaking point. Right. Unless, you know, we had a gigantic, generous welfare state. And just the protections of being a U.S. citizen, which is a pretty good thing. I mean, if you got the world's greatest superpower has your back, in most cases, that does you a lot of good pretty quickly. Most cases. And uh, we don't have to worry about slaves being born in the country anymore, so we don't just don't need it. It can go away. Right. right. But the president can't do away with it the way he wants. So No. Um, uh, we talked to General Stanley McChrystal. He's written a book about leadership. I might actually read. I've been reading the U.S. Grant biography, which uh, had great critical acclaim, and it's interesting to me that he was at West Point, he um he had trouble getting to class on time. His uniform was never right. It was always wrinkled. He just he just had all the all the markings of like a slacker doofus, which I can recognize in uh, in myself and others. <laughs> uh, but at at you know but went on to be one of the great leaders in the history of the world. So what there's something going on with the ability to I don't know. Maybe it's like McChrystal was saying when the moment meets you, right. you get your act together or something. I don't know. Well, I get that you're yearning to understand it, but his unsatisfying yet uh, good answer was that it's so contextual it's hard to describe yeah as he said sometimes successful ceos you put them in a different company and they they, they don't make it right doesn't work uh, what's coming up in your news marshall yeah uh, we got new details about operation faithful patriot 5200 u.s troops heading to the u.s mexico border california's attorney general's being sued for voter fraud and bitcoin linked to global warming Sorry, Bitcoin linked to global warming. Yes. Okay. <laughs> All on the way on the Armstrong and Getty Show. Took the kids to a pumpkin patch yesterday afternoon. They got lost in the corn maze. I thought I'd never see them again. Yeah. Thought I was just going to drive home with an empty car and have to explain to the wife. We no longer have children to raise. 
The maze, fun as you enter, somewhat concerning as you can't find your way out. <laughs> you know, it's it's a good metaphor for Halloween. Now, it's a little fun, but a little I'm getting a little weirded out here. Of course, then you get too tall and you can't see. Yeah. You see over the top. Oh, I see. You walk out again. <laughs> News now with Marshall Phillips. Well, President Trump eager to keep voters focused on illegal immigration in the lead up to the midterms. And he's now stepped up his warnings about the migrant caravans heading toward the U.S. saying there is an invasion of our country going on. So some 5,200 troops are now headed to the southwest border. And they're going to be arriving there by the end of the week. The forces are being deployed as part of Operation Faithful Patriot. When do the, the what is the caravan? I find that name a little over the top, by the way. What's the name? Operation Faithful Patriot. It's a little much. Um, yeah, that that sounds like you know we're taking on Al Qaeda in Iraq, not yeah. We're going to stop some um, families from walking across the border. You know, um, how about Operation Doing What Every Other Country Does? I like that as yeah, a name. Operation Reasonable Policy. It's it's funny because I agree, uh, you know, mostly with Trump on a lot of immigration issues. But this whole making a big to do about the uh, the caravan thing, I don't. It's just it's well, it's trumped up. Pardon me. It's amazing to me, and it's a great it's a great study of the electorate and how democracies work. That unemployment is incredibly low. The economy's good. Things are going great. We're at peace mostly. Apologies to families with guys in Iraq and Afghanistan and Africa and Asia and everywhere else. Um, There's plenty to run on, but we, the electorate, are not really interested in that. We need a hobgoblin to be afraid of, to run away from, or some pot of gold to run toward. You made that noise again. Which noise is that? Where you go like this. Uh, uh. What? Like Pretty much sums like, up my uh, like you've lost your will to live. There's so no, nah, I've I've lost my will to try to convince the electorate not to be morons. Present company excluded, folks. Of course, Trump was also saying on Fox News last night that uh, they will, the government will build tent cities for migrants who seek asylum. Telling Laura Ingram, we're going to have tents. They're going to be very nice. And they're going to wait, and if they don't get asylum, they get out. And very few people, they don't actually, if you want to wait, they don't usually get asylum. You know that. 80%. The problem is they release them in, and then they have the trial three years later, and nobody shows up. But we are going to, unlike Obama and unlike others, we are going to take the people, we're going to put them in, and they're going to wait. Trump saying that once migrants get the word that they are going to have to wait, and they will not be part of catch and release, as he puts it, he thinks a number of them in that caravan and others will just not uh, continue the effort to get into the U.S. That I think, seems like a perfectly reasonable policy. I think the reason Trump uh, wins on this issue so easily is most of America wants the border secure. Most of America doesn't like illegal immigration. And he is signaling more than anybody else by far, I hear you. I want to do something about it. That's and absolutely correct. And nobody else on either side of the aisle has, has signaled it that strongly in decades. Yeah. The whole... There's a caravan coming. It's an invasion. I find it overstated. His statement of what we're going to do when people pour illegally across the yeah. border, as opposed to going to a port of entry and applying for refugee status. We have a means for doing that. We're more than happy to hear your case and, and give you the decision. It's a humane policy. Um, I, I absolutely love what he said. It's, so, it's not some sort of pillow-clutching 
wet-eyed, tear-stained cheeks emotional discussion. It's a, hey, we got all sorts of people claiming refugee status. Some are legit, some are not. How are we going to handle them? Let's grow up now. Come on. Supporters of uh, repealing the California gas tax are accusing politicians of misleading voters by writing a false title and description of their measure. They're accusing them of that because it's true. It's fraudulent. Lawsuit filed by the Yes on Prop 6 campaign alleges the state attorney general, Javier Becerra, intentionally changed the ballot title in a blatant attempt to defraud voters. The measure was introduced as the Gas Tax Repeal Initiative. However, on November's ballot, it says Proposition 6 eliminates certain road repair and transportation funding. Wow. Wow. Corruptifornia. One party rule. Utterly, utterly corrupt. Yeah, this suit is being called the last remedy to correct the misleading title. Turns out Bitcoin could be ecologically unsound. Researchers at the University of Hawaii saying that the virtual currency is having a negative effect on the global climate. They say the problem comes from the fact that cryptocurrency trading requires heavy hardware that uses a lot of electricity to carry out the so-called mining of the Bitcoin. Hmm, checking the list of dumbest things I've ever heard. (laughs) This is toward the top. They're saying the resulting carbon dioxide emissions could have a catastrophic effect if the digital currency gains worldwide popularity. Great Scott Hawaii, check yourself. Cap your volcanoes, mix your Mai Tais, welcome your tourists, and pipe down, all right? There you go. That's a wrap. That's your news. I'm Marshall Phillips, the Armstrong and Getty Show, the conscience of the nation. Thank you for the use of Pearl Harbor. Do you want to hear Hillary in her own words? You tell me whether or not you think she's running based on the way she answered the question. Much more importantly, coming up, the difference between Republican and Democrat sex fantasies. Very revealing. It actually is kind of revealing. Did you hear about the woman that choked at the all-you-can-eat pancake contest? I did. Now they're suing? Oh, yeah. That's a tough one. That's horrible. God dang it, you sit down for an all-you-can-eat contest, you gotta know. Come on now. Yeah. Yeah. Stay tuned to the Armstrong and Getty Show. I just got these pancakes from a restaurant called uh, Pancakes, Eggs, It's uh, kind of a play on words. Armstrong and Getty. The conscience of the nation. Armstrong and Getty Show. A week from tomorrow, the presidential election is on in in full. Hillary Clinton in an interview yesterday. You listen to this. You tell me whether or not she's running. We're going to talk about 2020 in a minute. Do you want to run again? No. no. Wait. <laughs> No. That was a pause. Well, I, well, I'd like to be president. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, be, look, I, I, I think, hopefully, 
when we have a Democrat in the Oval Office in January of 2021, there's going to be so much work to be done. I mean, we have confused everybody in the world, including ourselves. And <laughs> we have confused our friends and our enemies. Right. They have no idea what the United States stands for, what we're likely to do, what we think is important. Uh, so the work would be work that I feel very well prepared for, having been in the Senate for eight years, having been a diplomat uh, in the State Department. And it's just going to be a lot of heavy. Well, that settles that. Oh, it didn't get to the... Um... Yeah, didn't get to the there? key part. The key part being the lifting. Um, Are you going to be yeah. doing any of that lifting? Do you feel like? Oh, I have no idea, Kara. But I'm I'm going to, you know, I'm not going to even think about it until we get through this uh, November sixth election about what's going to happen after that. Is there any way to take that? I mean, if you say I'm not even going to think about it until after the election, that's not no, and anything that's not no in this context is yes, yes, and yes, she, yes until uh, until and unless she finds out that. The Democrats won't have her. Right. But you're clearly right. That was a uh, trial balloon to see how people would react. There are a number of strategists and commentators on cable news yesterday that said, oh, no, geez, no, please, no. On the Democrat side. Yeah. Uh, not um, surprisingly. No, yeah, not surprisingly. She lost to the guy from The Apprentice. <laughs> to, to me, the biggest tell was, and I think I would be perfectly suited for somebody yeah, to do why. such a thing. <laughs> and here's, here's my resume for it. You know, her, her whole, would you like to run? No. I'd like to be president. Uh, that was one of the more candid and oh. likable moments uh, I've ever experienced with the Hilda Beast. Oh, I get it. Uh, and, and I sh- don't mean physically a beast. I would never take that shot at a woman. I'm not that guy. I believe morally she's a beast, like a dangerous, terrifying animal that would rip you to shreds. Yes. Morally. Yes. Yes. I have no doubt. She and Bill have launched a nationwide bus tour that starts now and runs through G6 tour. May. They're going to have some poor hourly geek drive the bus. They're going to be on a Gulf Stream. But months long listening to her. pay for it. Don't worry about it. Going around the United States. That's clearly running for president. That's yes. what she's doing. Yeah. They're going to take a look at it. What's going to be enter- entertaining is your Kamala Harris's, your Bernie Sanders, your uh, everybody else that wants to be president, Cory Booker's, they got to cut her down fast. Oh, yeah. They can't let her get a foothold, a toehold anywhere. That'll be a brutal process, yes, won't it? Yes. So she, I, um, she'll find it really hard, I think, without the entire deck being stacked in her favor like it was the last, at least the last election, maybe multiple. Sure. Good analysis from Sean there. Uh, ran unsuccessfully, then ran successfully. Reagan, Nixon. Uh, anybody else in recent centuries, uh, decades? I'm trying to think. I'm not that into this stuff, but I think that's the only people like in the last 50 years. Everybody else has the decency to go away. <laughs> they lose. They're rejected by the American people. <laughs> Everyone else has the decency to go away. Especially when the other choice was the guy from The Apprentice, Let's be, who be, said horrible things. To be fair, <laughs> when she gets 65, 68 million votes, she got the yeah. most votes, and is a yeah. lot. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. It's the most votes for president anybody's ever gotten in an election. That has to do with population, but it's sure. the most votes anybody's ever gotten. How do you walk away from that and think, ah, nah, I'm not going to drive you? It would be perfectly reasonable for her to take another shot. Having learned what she's learned. I mean, as a human being, and having just had, a, to my mind, a great conversation with General Stanley McChrystal uh, a few minutes ago. If you missed it, uh, grab the podcast, um, which we give away for free because we're stupid. But anyway, um, you know, on human terms, I would say, of course you should try again. You damn near won it. You won the popular vote. 
you learn something from that go around. Your credentials are are solid. I mean, we've elected plenty of people with less impre- uh, impressive credentials than Hillary Rodham Clinton. So, yeah, on paper, you absolutely run again. In fact, in fact, the more you expose yourself to people, and it's been true your entire adult career, the less they like you. Yes. Yes. The more they hear from you, the less they like you. Yes. That has been her thing forever. I can relate. The less <laughs> I say, the better. Hey, we got a billionaire battle going on we should get into a little bit later. As the guy who started and runs Salesforce, the biggest employer in San Francisco, and the guy who runs Twitter... Um, also in the same zip code, have differing views on the whole sales tax thing, the whole tax to help out the homeless. Wow, Salesforce really? dude says, yeah, taxes, we have an obligation as a big, giant, rich company to help out the homeless. And uh, Dorsey from Twitter says, no, we don't. Uh, we're leaving. We're going to find a new headquarters if you do this. Right. Wow, that is interesting. Any chance we can get them to box? <laughs> like MMA fight. Include the kicking and the grappling. Although once you're on the ground, it's just guys rolling around. But anyway. Uh, that's okay. So we'll get into that. Plus, the sexual fantasies of Republicans and Democrats are very different. But uh, honestly, this sounds like a stupid story. How often do you have a sex dream? I don't know. Is um, there anything you can eat? Semi-regularly. Or, so what's semi-regularly? I don't know. I don't, it's hard to say. Uh, once, uh, once a year? Twice a year? Week, once, once a, a month? Week? God dang it. More than seldom. Is there anything I could eat to have more often? Have more often? Or? Well... Peanut butter crunch, that's what I use. Place I could touch on my brain that would make it happen? I have maybe one every five years. Mm. They're interesting, no doubt. They're awesome. I, I will. Yeah, they are. They are ultimately unsatisfying. I have, the, I have the dream where I'm on stage about to sing a song and can't remember the words. I have that one like once a week. I'm on stage uh, opening night of a play where I don't know any of my lines. Oh, yeah. I have that less than I used to. Man, when I was in my 20s, I would have that three times a week and wake up sickened. I don't even like to think about it. Sex dreams? No, the other one. (laughs) Or on stage with the Rolling Stones and they say, Joe Getty. And then I realize, I don't know this song. (laughs) It's, you know, it's pretty clear where that came from. Uh, this is dark, but uh, ultimately a happy story. Have you heard about the uh, mass shooting at the Alabama McDonald's? I've not. No, you don't, because the guy walked in and started shooting people, and a dad with his two sons with a lawfully uh, carried firearm whipped out his own pistol, returned fire. The gunman, of course, then focused on the good guy um, who was hit, um, but ended up killing the gunman, saving God knows how many lives. Right. Um. One of his sons was also hit. Son's injuries were not life-threatening. It's not clear the father's condition, um, but uh, it's not easy being a father and watching your child get injured. It's really heart-wrenching, but uh, the the coppers are calling the pistol-toting dad uh, a hero. If he wasn't armed, we might not be here having this interview. Um, So, anyway, sort of thing is not, you don't hear about it that much because journalists are uncomfortable with it. They frequently make, to my mind, the ludicrous. I, you know, I'd call it childlike, but I would be ashamed of a child who came up with this. The idea that more guns. Oh my god! Well, there's you the, got a bad guy with a gun, and you got a good guy with a gun. Yeah, that's more guns. There's I'll the, grant you that. There's the ideology of it that that doesn't work for people who want to get rid of guns. But there's also we just don't report things that don't happen as much. And it's always seemed weird to me. There was a, a near school shooting the other day. 
This kid had plans to slaughter people in his school. And oh, teacher yeah. or somebody found out and got his backpack or whatever before he did it. It barely made the news. If and it bleeds, it leads, Jack. No just, blood, no it, coverage. It's just luck that it didn't happen. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm a little paying attention, but th- those stories should get as much attention. Well, they ought to get, m- m- well, not more, but as much, like you say. You know, I realize you were making a point that it was luck or paying attention, but let's figure out, wait a minute, how did they find out? How did they stop that? Was there something the rest of us can emulate? Right. Was it a a particular policy of that school? Let's talk about it. But no, it doesn't draw eyes and ears the way that blood does. God, our media is sick. You know, I hate when Donald Trump calls the media the enemy of the people. I think it's a terrible phrase, and it's an awful message to send, and it's one of my strongest points of disagreement with him. On the other hand, the mine media is, mine is sucks. The, my strongest point of disagreement with Trump is the well-done steak. <laughs> I just... Well, that's indefensible. Indefensible. But the, the free press is the greatest friend of the people. Now, the fact that quite a few practitioners of the arts are sucko right now, it deserves criticism. But that doesn't mean you don't cherish the free press. But, you know... I disagree with my friends, and I don't hate them. I disagree with my enemies, and I don't hate them. I hate everybody. What do we got coming up? We have the difference between the sexual fantasies oh, right. of Republicans and Democrats. That's why I asked about the sex liberals. dreams. Now I remember. Right. Yeah. And I'm telling you, it sounds like dumb radio fodder just to talk about sex. It's not. It's interesting. Okay. It's coming up on the Armstrong and Getty Show.